This is Revive Chicago. Listen and be changed. All right. So let's dig in this morning. We're going to go to the book of Acts. And we're going to be in towards the end of the book, Acts chapter 26. And Acts is a really, like, it's kind of the only historical narrative in the whole New Testament. I had a friend call me yesterday, actually, asking me a question about the book of Acts and the Holy Spirit and some of the Holy Spirit activity. And I, I was thinking about it as I was answering his question. And I realized, like, I just remembered again, like, this is the, this is the history of what happened. And the way that Luke tells it, because all the, all the other books are letters or you've got like the gospels telling the story of Jesus, but then you've got the book of Acts that is the hist- like the history of the early church and telling what's going on with those people. And so, yeah, there's some history in the gospels and stuff, but we're talking after Jesus died and rose again, this is the history of the early church and what took place. And so this is where we learn about like, Peter and James and John and Stephen and then the Apostle Paul and how many books of the Bible he wrote. So if, if any of you guys are unfamiliar, the Apostle Paul wrote 13 books of the New Testament, different letters to different churches that he visited, helped plant, and he wrote to them, giving them instructions on how to keep walking out their faith. And The book of Acts then tells a lot of his story. And you notice as the book of Acts goes on, like it starts out calling him Saul. And then all of a sudden he's Paul. And there's some teaching out there that says like, well, he got converted to Christianity and he changed his name. Like God changed his name or something. But the the Bible doesn't actually teach that. It just shows, like if you read it, in one, at the beginning, he's in Jerusalem and around a bunch of Hebrew speaking people. And then after that, he's speaking to who? The Gentiles. And the Gentiles mostly spoke Greek. And so Saul in Greek is Paul. That's all it is. It wasn't like he got converted to Christianity, took on a Christian name. Like there was no Christian names at the time. Everything was Jewish. And Paul himself was a Jewish man going to the Gentiles to preach the Jewish Messiah and saying, the way of salvation is now open to you. And so the whole book of Acts Um, tells some of the different stories of of Peter and Stephen and Paul. And this is towards the end of Paul's ministry and his life. What we're about to read, he's actually standing, having to kind of defend himself to a king and to a local governor. And it's paralleling the story of Jesus. So um, another thing about the book of Acts this is, this is me, just my history. I feel like some of you might be interested, and others of you, like, eyes are glazing over. You're like, oh, history, dates, memorization. No. Uh, I like history and learning a little bit of the culture. It helps us understand the text. And so um, as we're reading about Paul here, what's happening is Luke wrote the book of Acts, and he also wrote the book of Luke. And <laughs> big surprise. And so he wrote the books of Luke and Acts as a part one and part two. And in part one, it's about Jesus and his story and what he did and how he went to the cross and he stood before the governor and the king and he got sentenced to death. And so Luke is actually, as he's writing Acts, he's showing us a parallel of Paul's story and how he was like Jesus and went to Jerusalem and ended up standing before the governor and the king 
at that time and how Paul taught, used it as an opportunity to present the gospel. And it's pretty, it's pretty amazing. So we're just going to start out in chapter 26, verse 1. And we're going to read a little bit, and I'll help you fill in some of the historical gaps, hopefully. And I'm, I'm not even sure where we're going to end today. We'll just see how far we get and how tired you are as I'm regurgitating this history. How about that? <laughs> so Acts chapter 26, verse 1. Then Agrippa said to Paul, you have permission to speak for yourself. So Agrippa here is, is the king, kind of like when Jesus was um, about to be crucified, King Herod was the king. So this is Herod Agrippa II. <laughs> Agrippa, such a, such a funny name, like it sounds like a character from Mario Kart or something. But um, King Agrippa, and he was, he was actually fairly young. When, he, when his dad died, uh, he, he became king at just the age of 17. And then there's another guy here in the story named Festus, who was the governor of the region. So they're kind of working together. And Festus has basically said, this case was brought before me. All the Jews are mad, and I don't know what to do about it. I don't know how to parse this out. Can you come help me? And Agrippa was known as having an understanding of Jewish affairs, Jewish theology. He knew, he knew some of the, um, the language and understood their culture and was part Jewish himself, obviously. And so, as he said, he gives Paul permission to speak. So Paul's standing before Agrippa, and uh, he's standing before Festus, and Agrippa's sister Bernice at the time. So Paul motions with his hand to begin his defense. Verse 2, King Agrippa, I consider myself fortunate to stand before you today as I make my defense against all the accusations of the Jews. And especially so because you are well acquainted with all the Jewish customs and controversies. Therefore, I beg you to listen to me patiently. So you can see here, even like Paul knows about Agrippa's reputation, and he knew that Agrippa understood all of the things that were going on. So uh, an analogy for that would be like, it, it sounds weird to say like Jewish customs and controversies, but like in America, everybody who was born here kind of has an idea about how elections work, and we've got Republicans and Democrats, and we kind of have this way Right? But if you were to go to another country, and you're like, what, you don't vote? Or their voting process is really different? Or you're trying to figure out, like, okay, red in your country doesn't mean conservative, and blue in your country, you know, like, you're trying to figure out the different customs and cultures. This is similar to that, except Paul knows that the guy he's speaking to now is actually familiar with the customs. He, so he's talking to someone, and he can speak to them, you could say, like, insider speak. So that's what he's acknowledging here. Verse 4. The Jews all know the way I have lived ever since I was a child, from the beginning of my life in my own country and also to Jerusalem. They have known me for a long time and can testify, if they are willing, that according to the strictest sect of our religion, I lived as a Pharisee. And now it is because of my hope and what God has promised our fathers that I am on trial today. This is the promise our 12 tribes are hoping to see fulfilled as they earnestly serve God day and night. O king, it is because of this hope that the Jews are accusing me. Why should, you, why should any of you consider it incredible that God raises the dead? I'll pause here for a second. So we've got Paul's, like, why is he on trial? 
Well, Paul's explaining to Agrippa that the reason he's on trial is because he's teaching that someone came back to life. Would that be controversial today? If you started teaching that someone in our contemporary era, like everybody kind of knows, yeah, like Jesus rose from the dead, right? People still question that, but it's a lot more normalized because everybody has heard about Jesus. But if, if your buddy died and then you're going to claim that he came back to life, people are going to be pretty skeptical, right? And the crucifixion is like the most gruesome way that a criminal could die at the time. So this would be the closest equivalent we would have today is like the electric chair or something. So you're going you're gonna to have to go around and convince people that your buddy who was a, what died as a criminal, an executionary death and the, on the electric chair, actually came back to life and he's the savior of the world. Like if you were going to make up a story, that's not the one you pick that's believable. You know what I mean? Like, if you're gonna if you're gonna try and convince people of a new, a new myth, a new religion, you're gonna st- let's start a religion, right? The last way that you would start a religion here in America is to try to convince people that a guy who died a criminal death on the electric chair is actually the savior of the world. Nobody's gonna believe you. And in this, in a similar fashion, like people would have assumed in Jesus' day, if he died. If he died because of a crucifixion, this guy deserved to die. He was a criminal. And why would you even try to claim that he came back to life? A, it doesn't make sense. We know people don't rise from the dead. B, he was a criminal. Unholy people definitely don't rise from the dead. And you're trying to sit here and tell me that he came back to life and he's actually the Savior. And this is why Paul's standing here before a king and a governor proclaiming this. Can you imagine? Can you imagine being on trial? Again, I'm just trying to like put some analogies in your brain and picture like you're sitting down before President Biden trying to convince him of this. Can you imagine the laughs and snickers you would get in the room? Because Biden would be like, but I'm the guy who had him executed or XYZ governor in whatever state. I'm trying to give us a little bit of a picture of sort of the audacity of Paul here and what he's doing and why he's saying he's on trial. And he's claiming to be on trial because of his belief that someone rose from the dead. And that the reason that he believed that and became convinced of that is because that's what the scriptures teach. And he's saying, the Jews that are coming against me are actually going against what the word promises, what the scriptures promise. The scriptures promise that this would happen. And I'm convinced that it's true. So we'll keep going here. Verse 9. So now he's giving Agrippa some backstory. He says, I too was convinced that I should do everything possible to oppose the name of Jesus of Nazareth. And that is just what I did in Jerusalem. On the authority of the chief priests, I put many of the saints in prison. And when they were there, they were put to death. I, or, and when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. Many a time, I went from one synagogue to another to have them punished. 
and I tried to force them to blaspheme. In my obsession against them, I even went to foreign cities to persecute them. So now he's giving Agrippa some background. Like, I understand where you're coming from. I understand where these Jews who are accusing me are coming from. I was once one of them. I believed that the name of Jesus should be stamped out. That's what he's saying. Then verse 12. On one of these journeys, I was going to Damascus with the authority and commission of the chief priests. About noon, O king, I was on the road and I saw a light from heaven brighter than the sun blazing around me and my companions. We all fell to the ground and I heard a voice say to me in Aramaic, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? It is hard for you to kick against the goads. There's a couple things going on here. First of all, the the noonday sun is pretty bright and hot, especially in the Middle East. Every picture I've seen of the area is desert. Seems to be a hot place. And so I'm picturing like this bright light shining, brighter than the noonday sun. So they're, they're walking along and they know the sun is there and there, there's this other ball of light and it's so bright it actually blinds Paul. And Jesus speaks to him, and, but he doesn't say it's Jesus at this moment. He just says a voice, right, speaking to me in Aramaic. That's why he switches back to saying Saul, Saul. That's why I felt the need to tell you like he's switching back between Saul and Paul. And he says, Why do you persecute me? It is hard for you to kick against the goads. And most of us are like, I don't know what a goad is. What's the big deal about kicking one? (laughs) Right? But a goad was actually something that you would use on livestock or uh, like if you've got an ox hauling a cart or something like that. It was basically a sharpened stick specific to push against and poke the ox in the butt and make it move. So if you've got this huge ox in this cart and you're trying to get it to move along and keep the pace, that's what you would poke it with. So think about what it would feel like to kick a sharp stick. Like, no, like who does that on purpose? Like I could see you accidentally doing that or stubbing your toe or something along those lines. But like what he's saying here is like you are kicking against the ox goad. Like why are you doing that? You're just hurting yourself. You're, you're fighting it. It'd be like an ox that gets poked once and then tries to kick to stop. Like, it's not going to do anything to stop the poke. You're going against the grain. And there was, this was actually a Greek idiom at the time. It was a saying. You know, we have our modern sayings, you know, like somebody's going to go do a number in the theater or something. We're like, oh, break a leg. And we don't really mean break a leg. Stuff like that. Like we have different sayings in our day that either mean the opposite of what, they mean, what we're actually saying or they just have various meanings and things that we say all the time we don't even think about. Well, in this day, kicking against the goads was a saying that meant fighting against the gods. And so Jesus appears to him and basically says, you're fighting against God. Paul thought what he was doing was for God. He thought persecuting Jesus, the followers of Jesus, was actually for God. He thought he was serving God. He thought he was gung-ho. He was going after it to try and stop the followers of Jesus and convinced he was doing it for God. And so now you've got this bright light 
brighter than the noonday sun, appearing out of nowhere, and a voice saying, why are you fighting against God? Paul didn't think he was fighting against God. And most of us probably don't think we are either. We'll get to that. Verse 15, Saul says, Who are you, Lord? I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting, the Lord replied. Now get up and stand on your feet. I have appeared to you to appoint you as a servant and as a witness of what you have seen of me and what I will show you. I will rescue you from your own people and from the Gentiles. I am sending you to them to open their eyes and to turn them from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God so that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place amongst those who are sanctified by faith in me. Now that's quite the mouthful. But now we see what's really going on and how Paul is setting up his defense. Because remember, he's on trial here. He's actually on trial for this. And the governor and the king are trying to figure out, like, why are the Jews so mad that this guy believes the dead guy rose again? That's what they're trying to figure out. Festus has literally said, like, in his letter to Agrippa to invite him to this situation, he's like, I don't understand why they're accusing him or what's going on. Can you come help me out? And so Paul explains this call, this moment. And now we see the real thing, the real, what's, go, what's going on here? Why are the Jewish people so mad? And it's because Paul was saying that he was called to share the light of Messiah to the Gentiles. They believed that if there was going to be a Messiah, he was going to be for the Jews. So A, they didn't believe that Jesus rose again. They didn't believe that he was the Jewish Messiah. And if there was going to be a Jewish Messiah, he's certainly not going to go and speak to the Gentiles. And so Paul's had this great revelation. He's had this Damascus Road experience, as we call it. And he's describing the call on his life and what Jesus said to him. And how he's going to rescue him from his people and send him to the Gentiles to, to turn them from darkness to light. To turn them from the power of Satan to God. So that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place amongst those who are sanctified by faith. Think about that. The Jewish people in their day had become very exclusive. The only people allowed in were Jewish people, were people willing to follow the Jewish ways. And here Jesus is saying, no, we're sending the invitation worldwide. To all peoples, to all nations, to all tribes, to all tongues, we're inviting them in to turn them from darkness to light, to let them experience the power of the forgiveness of sins, and to take their place amongst the sanctified. And maybe some of you in here have Jewish heritage. Maybe, probably most of us do not. But the reason we are here, the reason we are gathered in this place, is because Jesus opened the way for us to come in and turn from darkness to light. To accept forgiveness of our sins. 
And now we get to have an opportunity to stand amongst those who are sanctified. And a lot of this has to do with what Paul did, what Paul said, the sacrifices that he made, the fact that he stood before this Roman governor and this king. And I think about the way Paul words some of these sentences. And I was picturing some of you in here, some of us in our church right now, and the people that God is about to bring. And how there's supposed to be this transition from darkness to light, from the power of Satan to the power of God. And I thought to myself, like, how many of the people in our church have truly experienced that? Where they've set aside darkness and decided to be light. Where they've been rescued, where they really know, like, I've been forgiven. I've been set free. I'm no longer under the power of Satan. My mind is no longer under the power of Satan, under the power of darkness. I am a free person. How many people are really there? Like, they know Jesus. They know the story of Jesus. How many of us, how many of us are walking that out and being disciples? We're walking in the light now. And hopefully it's all of us. But today, part of my message is to, is to focus on these verses and this story about Paul and what happened. And you're like, I, every time I read this, I'm, I'm thinking like, man, that would be so cool to have a Damascus Road experience. Like, wouldn't that be awesome to just this ball of light appears out of the sky and speaks to you and knocks you on the ground? I don't know. I think that'd be cool. Some of you are like, no, I'm I'm good. <laughs> But I think about that, like, even as a, I've been a believer all my life, and like, to have an experience with Jesus like that, that just rocks you, to me that sounds awesome. And I wonder sometimes, like, why don't moments like this happen more often in the church? Why don't more people get saved like this? Like, how many people have had a legitimate Damascus Road experience since Paul had it way back when. And I've heard of people having visions and dreams and getting saved because Jesus appeared to them. And I, I've heard it here and there. But one of the ideas I came up with is, why, does it, why doesn't this happen? Verse 19, it says, So then, King Agrippa, I was not disobedient to the vision from heaven. It just hit me. And why doesn't this why doesn't this happen more often? Why aren't people getting more visions and dreams? Why aren't they just like getting knocked on their butt by Jesus and prove proof that he's real? Proof that he's raised from the dead. And I think that's the answer. Is God knew Paul would be obedient. But how many of us even if a big ball of light came out of the sky and God himself spoke to you, wouldn't change a thing. You wouldn't do anything different. 
You wouldn't start seeking his face more. You wouldn't be more vocal about your, your walk with Christ. You wouldn't be telling other people about Jesus. God knew that if he did this for Paul, if he came out of the sky and said, you're kicking against the goads, you're fighting, you're persecuting me, he knew what Paul would do. And Paul did not rest until he could tell as many people as possible about Jesus. And he wrote letters and he talked about how he wanted to know Christ more and be close with him. And even to suffer with him. And I was convicted by that. Like, what if the reason that more of these visions don't happen is because none of us would change anything? We wouldn't do anything. We'd hear, we'd, we'd tell other people, we'd certainly get bragging rights, like, hey, Jesus appeared to me. <laughs> like, we'd get bragging rights in church, but we wouldn't change anything. We wouldn't do anything different. That's convicting to me. Like, what Paul says, I was not disobedient to the vision from heaven. But most of us, We'd start to rationalize. Like, did it, I don't, did it really even happen? Like, was I just kind of making this up? Did I, was I having a weird dream? Was I hallucinating? Did I walk by somebody else and get, sec, you know, get a secondhand high? Or what's happening? Like, we'd, we'd tell ourselves whatever different rationalization. We'd tone it down. Maybe we'd be more on fire for a couple weeks, but eventually... We'd tone it down. We wouldn't change anything. And Paul drastically changed everything. Drastically changed everything. This is, this is like a Muslim terrorist going from wanting to bomb and kill people to loving them and teaching them about Christ. Like that's the drastic nature of this change. And it's convicting. So, King Agrippa, I was not disobedient to the vision from heaven. First to those in Damascus, and then to those in Jerusalem, and in all Judea, and to the Gentiles also, I preached that they should repent and turn to God and prove their repentance by their deeds. And this is, we're like, wait, I thought Paul taught on grace. Like, not by works, it's, it's all through faith. And he says here, this is the same guy who wrote Grace Through Faith. He said, to turn to God and prove their repentance by their deeds. When you turn to God, there should be a distinction in your life. Paul, Paul literally had this Damascus Road experience, and within a week, he was preaching Like basically as soon as he got his eyesight back. Because <laughs> if a giant ball of light brighter than the sun shines in your eyes, you kind of go blind. <laughs> he doesn't tell that part in this, in this telling of the story. There's three different times he tells this story in the book of Acts. And in this telling of the story, he doesn't really concentrate on the, on the blindness and what happened. You can go back, there's, there's two other times, so I'm reading the third, time, the third and final time he got to tell his testimony. 
But the first time it, it describes it, and it's, like, it's a really awesome story. What happened and how, like, God tells this other Christian man that Saul of Tarsus is in the house of Judas over on Straight Street. Go there and pray for him and he'll recover his sight. It's like, wow, I want God to speak to me like that. Like, just tell me straight, like, go over to 95th and da, 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 like, and just tell us the address and I'll go pray for that person and everything, you know, I want God to be that direct with me sometimes. But Paul here had the vision and then changed everything instantly. And I feel like, and this is why, this is why I'm having this conversation with you today. I feel like some of us, you gave your life to Jesus. You said, I'm going to follow you. Thank you for forgiving me. You said the right words. But now you've got to start making the changes in your life. There has to be the fruit of repentance. And Paul here even describes it as to prove their repentance by their deeds. So you were living one way. Now you've accepted Jesus. You're like, all right, I believe this by faith. I'm accepting what he did for me. I'm accepting his forgiveness. But now because you've accepted his forgiveness, you've got to change your pattern. You've got to change your ways. You've got to act differently. You've got to follow him. You can't just keep living the way that you were living. You can't just keep doing what you were doing. Well, God loves me. He forgives me. No, the fruit of repentance is a changed life. Your actions become different. You start hanging out with different people. You change your environment. You start talking different. You start thinking different. There is a big difference. We, we opened up the service today after worship, talking about freedom. Well, a person in bondage to fear and anxiety, a person in bondage to offense, they're living a certain way with a certain mindset. A free person lives different. They walk different. They talk different. And can you imagine? Like, we think we live in dark times now. Like, this is a time where Jesus is being preached for the very first time to the Gentiles. They have no context for Jesus or living differently. And Paul's going to go preach to a bunch of people who have never heard the gospel, who've never heard of Jesus. Like, most of us, like, whether or not you grew up in church, like, you kind of know, I should live better, I should be more moral, or, like, we've got these ideas in our head. But like Paul's going and preaching to the Gentiles who have no idea what morality is. None. They do whatever they want. And he's preaching to them and saying, prove your repentance by your deeds. And now we get to the crux of the issue, right? Verse 21. This is why the Jews have seized me in the temple courts. And they tried to kill me. But I have had God's help to this very day. And so I stand here and testify to small and great alike. I am saying nothing beyond what the prophets and Moses said would happen, that Christ would suffer and as the, and as the first to rise from the dead would proclaim light to his own people and to the Gentiles. So Paul makes clear the reason that he's on trial is because he's going and trying to talk, invite the Gentiles in and the Jews don't like it. It's 
A, they believe, that he believes that Jesus was raised from the dead, and B, he's trying to invite the Gentiles in. Racism is an age-old issue. God's always dealing with our hearts. When we try to make things exclusive, we try to keep other people out, that's wrong. That's anti-gospel. So Paul is proclaiming a Jesus who was the first to rise from the dead. And that he should proclaim that light to his own people and to the Gentiles. Verse 24. At this point, Festus interrupted Paul's defense. You are out of your mind, Paul. Your great learning is driving you insane. (laughs) This is great. So Festus knows how smart Paul is, all of the learning, all of the training that he had. And now he's like, you've gone mad. You're, you're believing that this guy came back to life that was crucified. This doesn't, your, your great learning has driven you insane. And if we're really honest with ourselves, like every single one of you sitting in this room, part of the reason you're in this room is because you believed that a guy 2,000 years ago died a terrible death and came back to life. That's not the most intellectually appealing argument ever. But I believe it happened. I've staked my life on the belief that that happened. And the belief that that happened drives me to get to know the crucified Lord even more. To sing to him, to worship. That's why we gathered and sing these songs And praise his name. Because he was the first to rise from the dead. And small and great alike can believe that testimony. And it doesn't matter how intelligent you are. This is true. It doesn't matter if you have no intelligence. If you have the IQ of a bird, this is true. I'm trying not to look at anybody specific. (laughs) It's crazy to put Jesus on trial like this. Paul had a lot of audacity. He figured out a way to put Jesus on trial and get this written in the court records and be able to proclaim to not just the people on the street that he was preaching to, but to preach to the highest levels of authority in the land, that Jesus is Lord, he rose from the dead, and he's here for the Gentiles. He's here for all peoples. And it drove him. And Paul says, verse 25, I'm not insane, most excellent Festus. What I am saying is true and reasonable. The king is familiar with these things, and I can speak freely to him. I am convinced that none of this has escaped his notice because it it was not done in a corner. King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? I know you do. And now he's turning his defense into like trying to get this guy converted. He's like, do you believe the prophets? I know you do. And he's starting, and look at this. Then Agrippa said to Paul, do you think that in such a short time you can persuade me to be a Christian? Like this is happening in a court case. Like imagine law and order, dun, dun, dun. Like 
And you're sitting there defending the gospel and talking about a guy who rose again. And then the judge is like, you're gonna con- you think you're going to convince me in such a short time? And Paul, <laughs> I love Paul. He's like, short time or long, I pray God that not only you, but all who are listening to me today become what I am except for these chains. Like, what? Who is this guy? He must have had a real Damascus Road experience or something. But he's so convinced. He's so sure of himself. And he's talking to the lowliest people on the street. The, books of, the book of Acts tells us over and over different instances. He's getting, he's getting slaves to follow Jesus. And now here he is in the highest court appealing to Caesar just to proclaim the gospel in that context. And we back off. We're so afraid. We're so ashamed. Do you know about Jesus? Like We're so hesitant to tell other people. We're so hesitant to talk about our faith. And Paul is just going for it. And today, part of what I want to encourage all of us in this room is why do you have to have this big bright light shine from the, shine brighter than the sun and knock you on your butt in order to get you to do something for Jesus? To speak up for Jesus. To be bold for Jesus. To have the audacity to get him on trial. We're, what, like, what are we waiting for? Are we waiting for Jesus to come out of the sky and do this for us just so that we'll be motivated, just so that we'll do something different? Or is his word, is his word enough? Are the experiences of his people enough? Have you experienced enough forgiveness to know this is true? To share that forgiveness with someone else? To rescue them from the fear and anguish and offense that they're living in day to day? Like all of, all of the social ills, all the divisiveness, all the racism, all of the things that's going on that are talked about and chattered about on the socials constantly. You have the antidote. Jesus is the answer to that. He heals those divisive wounds. He heals those ancient pre- prejudices. He sets people free. He breaks bondages. That's the Jesus we serve. You have the antidote that brings the healing. And then we just stay quiet. And Paul's like, I'm going to bring him to court. Let's go. And it's crazy because he appealed, he appealed to Caesar. Watch what happens out now. Paul says, I hope that all of you become like I am, right? And then verse 30. So the king rose and with him the governor and his sister Bernice and those sitting with them. They left the room, and while talking with each other, they said, this man is not doing anything that deserves death or imprisonment. And Agrippa said to Festus, this man could have been set free if he had not appealed to Caesar. You know what? Paul knew that. He appealed to Caesar so that he could go and speak this message to Caesar. Not so that he could be a free man. That, 
That's awesome. How many of us think like that, are motivated like that? So motivated, we're, like you're essentially risking jail time. And in Paul's case, guaranteeing jail time. So that he could proclaim the gospel to the people that he was called to. To speak in front of the highest court of the land. So that the emperor himself would, heal, would hear Paul's words and hear, hear Paul's message. And we can't talk to the waitress. We can't speak to someone that we've known all our lives and tell them how free we've gotten. And we hold back the life and light of Jesus because we're afraid. Like, well, what if they ask me questions that I don't know? The answers are here. You've got a book that you can refer to. You've got a pastor. That like if you're if you're in a conversation and you get stuck, just shoot me a text real quick. You're like, hey, what uh, what's this verse or what's that? <laughs> like, ask me. I'm here. This is this this group of people right here. We're together in this. And you know what? We're not facing a Roman government that's overreaching. We're not facing a government that's killing Christians. We're not risking half of what Paul's risking and we still hold back. And today my message is to encourage us to be bold in our faith, to speak about Jesus because we know him. We've been set free and our desire is to live different. If God wants to give me a Damascus Road experience, so be it. But until that happens, I'm still going to live with a fire in my belly to tell other people about Jesus, to proclaim his good news, to Jew and Gentile alike, to be inclusive, not exclusive. Our church can't be some exclusive place where only a certain type of person gets in. We have to be a church for everybody. For every tribe, nation, tongue, for every, whatever social class, however, no matter whether you're broke or not. Whatever status you have, you're welcome here. These altars are for you. So much of the time, those voices try to exclude ourselves. Some of you in this room, you still feel that exclusion sometimes. And it's not, hopefully you don't feel it coming from me. But we, we hear these voices that isolate us and tell us, Nobody there really knows us or cares if I'm there or not. Like, coming to church on a Sunday is one of the ways that you're showing proof of your repentance. Reading your Bible, praying, getting to know who this Jesus is. Those are disciplines in your life that show the proof of repentance. I've changed my life. My life is different now. I live different now. I talk different now. And I'm excited to share the good news of what happened to me. Let's stop holding back, church. Let's be bold in our faith. Let's tell the story of Jesus. And preach Christ crucified. It's a story that doesn't make much sense and if we're being purely rational about it. But it's a true story. It's what happened. And this story changed my life. This story changed your life. 
And I guarantee you it's going to change others. It's not going to end with you. It's not going to stop with you. So would you stand with me this morning? I unpacked a lot here today. We told a long story, you know. We learned some new characters. We learned about the Roman justice system. But you know what? All of, all of us, we have to put it in our own context. In our own life. And you know what? I hope some of you have your version of a Damascus Road experience. I pray that God reveals himself to you in visions and dreams and he helps to shake things up a little bit. But until then, you can't just not tell people about the forgiveness that you've experienced, about the repentance that's happened in your heart, what's caused you to change your ways. Paul purposed in his life to know Jesus after that moment. It defined him. And just like Paul said, I was not disobedient to the vision I had. We can't be disobedient. We can't hold back. We can't sit around waiting for God to do some more convincing proof. What's more convincing than rising from the dead? I mean, seriously, what's, what more could God have done than to send his son and have him rise from the dead after the most gruesome death you could die? It's pretty convincing to me. And the people who believed it then didn't have anything to gain. They all got died. They all got killed for their belief. People don't die for a made-up story. People don't die for a made-up story. And every single one of the disciples died because they knew it was true. They were killed for their faith. Except John. John, they tried to kill him, but he didn't die. <laughs> He lived into his 90s. They, they, they put him in boiling oil. This is history. They put him in boiling oil and the guy didn't die. So they just pulled him out. They're like, well, I guess we'll just send him off to this island. So he stops preaching. And so they exiled him to the Isle of Patmos. And that's where he had and wrote the book of Revelation. Okay. <laughs> that's, that's real belief. Real motivation. When you're excited to share something that's happened to you, something that's transformed you and transforming you. A new way to live. So this morning, God, I pray for Revive Chicago Church, for every single person under the sound of my voice. Whew. I pray a deeper hunger to know you. To know you and Oh, like Paul knew you. Like Peter knew you. Like John knew you. To know you. 
It feels so close that we can't help but share the news of what you've done in our lives. That we don't avoid the tough conversations, we seek them out. So close to Jesus that we're proud of our best friend. We can't wait to tell other people about him. God, I pray that you would help us be obedient to your call. Be obedient to the call. Just like Paul was obedient to the call in his life. Every single one of you in this room have a call in your life. This message is a reminder of that call. God, help us fulfill that call. Help us walk out that call. The change we felt inside, the chains that we felt break off, help us to show those to other people. The broken, shattered chains that no longer hold us back. Help us to hold them up and say, look what Jesus did. Look at my freedom. Give us boldness to talk about what you've done, Jesus. To be obedient to the call on our lives. To share your good news wherever we go. In Jesus' mighty name, amen. Thank you for listening today. Now it's time to put your faith into action by applying this word to your life. If you'd like help taking your next steps with Jesus, contact us at revivechicago.church.